Hello, I'm Badis, and welcome to the Implement Podcast. This is a podcast where we have great conversations about marketing, growing brands, and what it takes to be a great marketer. If you're interested in keeping up with the podcast episodes and the amazing content we produce at Implement, you should definitely subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to join-implement.com to subscribe. All right, enough self-promo. Let's dive into this new episode. And thanks again for tuning in. Welcome everyone to this new episode of the Implement Podcast. Today, my guest is Eva Valerio. Uh, Eva is a global head of discovery ads at Google. Uh, thank you so much, Eva, for taking the time today. Uh, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit more to, uh, to the audience? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, yes, I'm Eva Valerio. I am currently the global head of discovery ads at Google. Uh, I am fresh joining the Google team, so really excited to be in this new role. I am currently finishing my week six, um, so really stepping into a new role and learning a lot has been a great expansion of mine um, for this year. I have most recently, I'm joining from Estee Lauder, where for the past five years, I led the digital strategy for the Le Maire brand. So anything from social media to paid media, CRM, um, e-com, it runs the gamut of digital strategy. So it's been a, a big stretch joining the Google team and taking on a whole new space, but been really exciting for the past month and a half. Um, talk a little bit about my career, my path to Google. So I think a lot of people have asked me that question, especially coming from Estee Lauder, from beauty to tech is usually a pretty big jump, especially the role I've entered is uh, closer to product than say sales, which is a more natural move for most. Um, my career, I started my career, I went to fashion school mm. and I started my career in PR, which I very quickly found out was not the right career for me uh, in my first few months of that job. I was in very traditional PR, pitching news, pitching kind of more like medical stories. And it really wasn't like a fit for me. I wasn't passionate about it. So I switched gears and I joined um, and I focused on marketing. I really wanted to find marketing. I thought maybe it was eventing. So I joined um, Nylon Magazine and I really took on a marketing role there, which evolved, which I kind of found myself in digital. It, it was the time, you know, they were like, you're young, you can handle social media, figure it out for us, figure out the website. So that's really how I found my, my niche in digital. Um, and I just loved it. It was so fun. It was so challenging. Every day it was something new. And I'm a lifelong learner. Um, it's a, a big passion of mine. So this space allows me to really flex my curiosity a lot. So from Nylon, I joined um, at several companies from there, all in the digital space, sometimes with more focusing focuses on marketing, sometimes more focused on building a brand, sometimes more focused on growth. Um, and it, ironically, I had this pattern. I've just noticed it now joining Google. I can say third time you see a pattern happening is officially a pattern. I tend to do consumer goods or like a physical brand. And then I go into tech, which is really interesting. And then I go back to a physical good and I go back to tech. And then I did it at Le Maire and here I am at Google. So I officially have a pattern that I have to think about a little bit more why I'm doing it. Um, maybe it's cause I want, I, I miss the really like really technical and working with engineers and product managers. So that's a little bit about my background and my career and how I got to Google. 
Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that and uh, congrats on the on the new job because it is uh, it is fairly new, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's um it's funny when you talked about joining a magazine and and you know them telling you, "Hey, you're young, you can you can take care of the digital side of things." Um I feel like a lot of uh marketers in our generation like uh you know uh it, it had this sort of same kind of path like we we sort of got out of school and uh um and the only jobs you know hiring were in digital so we we had a sort of a marketing degree but you know uh digital was hiring so we went to digital and uh and yeah it's uh and thank god we did it because i don't know if i would have liked the old marketing ways uh, to be honest yeah i totally agree i, I think it's so funny you know back then when you look back on it too it was like they didn't care about it they're like oh this like you know, 23 year old, she can do it. Just let her handle it. Doesn't matter anyway. It's just a bunch of photos. Fast forward to where we are today. And, you know, every CEO is talking about focused on it. It's, it's the bulk of the business. So it is really amazing to see the trajectory of the function yeah. uh, and it's growing importance, which I agree, you know, now it would never see that happening. Everyone's paying attention. There's really thought out strategies. It's such a core part of any marketing yeah. business um, leaders kind of toolbox, but I agree. I think, I don't know that I would have been as drawn to marketing. Maybe no. if I was like Mad Men advertising director, I'd be really <laughs> into it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, I think there's a, it's definitely a good fantasy to have, but in reality, I think it's a, it's another story. Like, I don't know what I, what excites me about digital is just the, um, it's just the, the, the rapid sort of feedback you can get on anything you do. And it just, it just makes it super exciting when you have to wait for, you know, uh, two, three months to finalize a print campaign or, you know, uh, TV ads or whatever. It's, it's another story. It's just, uh, it's much slower. It's much more processed. It's much, I like the sort of, uh, you know, quick experimentation. I like the speed of, of digital. It's, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. Um, so you went from, you went from a fashion school to a PR to like, you know, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, how, how did you transition from fashion to, to PR? Like what happened then? Well, you know, in fashion school, I went to FIT in New York City and it's a liberal arts uh, state-based school. So they do round out your education and I was in the business school. So it was a really interesting and honestly fantastic education for me because it gave me the business aspects of fashion. And I think if I had gone to a more traditional school for business, I would have found it to be dry. But because the way that they build their curriculum is so focused on these creative businesses and thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, advertising and marketing in this space. Um, they, I took a PR class, I took a television production class. Mm -hmm. So it was a really broad education and it really let me kind of try out a lot of things and they have a big uh, big focus on internship um experience and kind of real working experience to help you know where you want to go when you you leave so because of that education and honestly because of the time it was you know the late 2000s i feel like pr was the hot job at the time there's a lot of tv shows around you know Lauren Conrad and the Hills were popular. So it was definitely a romanticized career, I think at that mm. stage. So that's why I landed there first out of college. It's kind of an adjacent business to fashion yeah. um, and same with publishing. So it was kind of like a natural build as mm. I, I 
took steps to figure out what I really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because my, my sister actually did a fashion school as well uh, in Paris called the uh, Mod, I think if I remember well, and she, yeah, she just, uh, she went into business because the fact is they're not really like fashion schools. Like they do learn uh, like all the, the craft and everything, but it's, uh, uh, they're also business schools and they, they train them really to, to be like executives at, uh, uh, you know, uh, fashion brands, which, which she did. She was on the business side, like from, you know, as soon as she st stepped out of school. So yeah, it's uh, absolutely, it's, uh, uh, it's an, uh, sort of um, an unknown path, you know, when you, when you, when you love fashion, etc. you can also, you know, uh, sort of yeah take that 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 route but just uh uh end up on the business side of things which is really interesting and there are definitely transferable skills there to other industries like yourself you're in tech now which is <laughs> sort of uh yeah it's a uh, quite a journey um, yeah yeah definitely i i totally agree it's funny i think when i was maybe 14 i thought i wanted to be a fashion designer but i'm lacking deeply in the artistic skill set so I had to find out and kind of repivot as I worked my way through high school. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that they give you a lot of opportunities to explore and try new things um, in a in a way that's very kind of art school based, and that like kind of that freedom and that kind of um, curiosity is really fostered. So that I appreciated. And then to answer your question on how I made the transition to tech, I did go back to school for my MBA. So it, um, while working at SA Water. I really saw another opportunity for me to go back into education. Again, a lifelong learner, it's just what I do. I, I could, if I had, could have any career, it'd be like a career student. I would love to get a PhD and something crazy, but I, I could see that I was still missing a portion of an education as I was kind of growing and, and moving my way into the ranks of an executive that I needed to go back and refine. And it would really focus more on leadership and management and managing teams and change management change management and, and working through um you know adversity things like that so that's really where i took the next step and i think a lot of that skill set is why i found myself at google today and it's yeah. less that it's focused on tech and more about that kind of leadership mindset yeah yeah no that's uh, that's really great um and and so I guess the you know you started in digital at the magazine. So when you when you got to Estelle was it sort of a uh, already sort of a digital you know uh, heavy company or was it sort of uh, the beginning? And how how did you uh, you know what did it look like on a digital landscape there? Yeah, you know I should probably take one step back before I got to Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder, a lot of my careers have been I want to call them serendipitous, but largely, I would say they're luck-based, right? A lot of these things are timing, chance, um, and luck. Mm -hmm. So I actually was in a tech startup before I was at Estee Lauder. Um, and like most startups, you run a risk of the startup not taking. And that was one of the scenarios. And I went through a round of layoffs, which is very common and very scary mm -hmm. um, in the right before I started at La Mer. So I was actually unemployed when I had gotten in contact with an old colleague, mine, an old friend mentor, and she had just landed at La Mer and she knew I had this background. She knew I had done social. She knew I worked with influencers in a time where it was still fairly nascent. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and Le Maire, to answer your question, as a brand, a luxury brand, was just getting started. So mm. I actually had joined Estee Lauder and Le Maire as a consultant. And I didn't think I was going to stay because I thought I wanted to stay much closer to tech and being in digital and in a smaller, a smaller scale and really kind of being an innovative brand. Um, and I and I didn't know Estee Lauder well. I, I assumed it was a big, you know, for, Fortune 500 company moving slower. Um, so I joined the brand on what I thought would be a short contract. And to answer your question again, yeah, they were just starting with social. I mean, they had just launched Instagram, Pinterest, kind of like throwing spaghetti against a wall to see what worked. And it was really about building the structure. Um, again, such a big brand and such a big business um, and really building that foundational strategy, upskilling glo the global role globally, understanding where each market was uh, in the adoption of the platform and really what it was meant to do. Um, and I got to the brand and I loved it. It was such a startup mentality. It was still a fairly small brand in the portfolio, running independently. If we had ideas, we could try it. It wasn't, you know, lots of corporate red tape. So really fun. And it, it was a fun time for social, you know, it's a skincare brand, but at that time makeup was everything. So it was all about how you think color does so well on social, it's so visual. And I remember over and over again, I was like, well, skincare, you can't see skincare in social media. So how can you make it work? It won't work. And I, today I, I literally laugh because in today's environment, 2021 skincare is everything. I mean, you go on Instagram and it's like skincare brand for skincare brand. And it's just funny to think back on how we solve that visually and, and how you use texture um, and how you use skin and like glowing beautiful skin to kind of trans you know, show that and transfer the same kind of visual benefits. Um, so in that role, as the brand became more sophisticated, um, as it continued to grow, as the space continued to evolve and the ecosystems changed in each country, um, my role expanded, we took on more, we got, you know, more foundations, we started innovating more, we started testing more. Um, and it became now it's again, the full fledged part of the marketing strategy when it was really just a testing ground when I first stepped in. Yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, thanks for sharing this. It's a uh, it's a great story, and I didn't know that you were uh, uh, that the com the startup you were in before actually uh, was uh, you know was was not successful. Does it still exist today, the startup, or was it uh, shut down? Um, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't think so. No. I think they've been trying to kind of reevaluate its purpose, mm. um, but it's definitely not. It's still in that yeah. stage of yeah reinvention. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you join, but finally, uh, I mean, in the, at the end of the day, you join uh, La Mer, which is, which was like sort of a, a, st a startup on its own. So uh, I think it's, uh, it's really great when you can find this, uh, you know, uh, sort of the startup experience, but within sort of the umbrella of a of larger company with resources, et cetera, I think it can get really exciting and you can have a lot of freedom, but also like uh, have the, you know, the latitude to do a lot of things. So yeah, that's a, uh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So, uh, you know, the, this brand, uh, maybe could you tell us a bit more about what this brand is? Because I, I, I do know like uh, a, a little bit the space. Uh, Lucy, my, my co-founder was actually uh, in, the, in the cosmetics industry as well. And she, uh, she told me about La Mer uh, before. So, but maybe, you know, could you tell us a bit more about, about this company? Yeah, so La Mer is a skincare brand. It's, uh, we, we like to call it Uber luxury positioning. 
Um, so it's really the top tier, and I believe it's still the number one luxury brand um, for skincare globally. So if you think about um, an equivalent in a different luxury industry like Louis Vuitton or Mays, that's the level at which um, the brand is really playing at um, and the expectation and the benefits and the claims and just also the craft of the product. Um, so the brand itself, to give you a little bit of a history, was actually founded by a astrophysicist and he himself had suffered burns in his career and he was looking for a way to heal himself. So he turned to the ocean. Um, he found the power of giant sea kelp and that's really the foundation of La Mer's ingredient. But what La Mer does differently than I would say other brands that use similar ingredients is that it's all about fermentation and this slow craft that makes it so potent and so effective. Mm. So that's really the, the brand heritage of um, how it was created and, and its reason for being. And really, it's all about a story of healing. So it's a really beautiful brand, pretty amazing story. And the brand itself, it's so connected and tied to the ocean. So yeah. they have a really amazing conservation effort around um, ocean conservation. It's a big part of uh, their ethos. Um, so really pretty amazing brand. So it's special, it was fun to join. Um, both because I felt very personally at attached to the brand um, and I was, I just thought it was fun to work on, yeah. but because it was such a beautiful story to tell. And one thing that I, I talk a lot about with friends, um, with mentees and just in general is that when you work in digital after a certain amount of years, you start to understand the tools in your toolbox and what works and how to use them together. And what I've always loved about working on the La Mer brand was working in luxury digital forces you to add a filter and makes the, the role that much more challenging because you can't just kind of use the same old tools because luxury is an art. And there's something really special about that, applying that filter before you hit send on any email because you're really building a brand um, and brand equity is a core part of this this business and how you stay connected to it yeah. and maintain that positioning so that's something that I've always really found extra special about working on this brand yeah. and in this space that I loved yeah it's uh I'm, I'm interested to, to to talk a bit more about this because like for people listening, uh, La Mer is super expensive. Like I think you understated it. Like uh, yeah, I, I don't know the I don't know Uber. the price. Yeah, uber expensive. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's not for everybody. Uh, and how do you sell such a product online? Like how do you? I'm I'm curious because it's uh, it's uh, many hundreds of dollars per per just per item. One ounce. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's absolutely super expensive. How do you connect with uh, this audience online? How do you, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, run your e-commerce activity with, with, when you are dealing with, uh, first of all, a very niche uh, type of audience who can, you know, who is able to purchase this kind of product? And, uh, and how, how do you market to them? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's evolved over the years as e-commerce in itself as a platform. Um, the consumer demographics have changed through shopping there. I tell you the past year has been a drastic shift in those kind of buying behaviors, but more on a baseline, there's a few ways we have thought about it. 
we had considered e-com to once upon a time being a replenishment model. So really the hard sell and the moment in which you're converting for the first time for acquisition happens in store because it's, it's skincare. You need to touch and you need to feel. So that's been a big conversation on how do you allow consumer to feel with their eyes online and what does that look like and how do you get really creative and there's an amazing creative team at Lemaire um, that is constantly asking these questions and it's really fun because for me it starts to push into that tech world where it's almost like a UX question right it's beyond just branding it's how do you really solve for these things and assist in that shopping journey online so they have the questions answered when they need them. Talking a little bit about customer segments Lemaire is a trophy brand so that's what we like to say it's that moment where you feel like I've made it or I'm treating myself and I now deserve this. So a lot of times we do hear in customer feedback or in stories just kind of shared that it's typically a, a milestone moment, whether it's you're getting married or you know you've had a great job that you just landed. And it's like I'm now is my moment. I have I have arrived and I'm buying La Mer. So that typically becomes kind of the mentality. And so when it comes to relationships on social media, and this is true for most luxury brands. There's also an aspirational buyer, right? So they're staying with you. They could be as young as like 22 years old, and they certainly don't have the discretionary and disposable income to purchase La Mer yet, but they love the brand and they aspire into the brand. They follow along and they engage with us. So that when that trophy moment and that I've made it moment does happen, we're that brand for them, you know, even if it's in 15 years from now. So we, maintain relationships and we have a very very much maintain a two-way dialogue on our social channels for that reason because we understand that they're not going to buy today and we do have products we call them little luxuries that are kind of little minis that are a more affordable price point so should they really want to step in or put it in their makeup bag they have they can do that um but we know that they won't graduate into the, the true full size until much later and we're okay with that because we think that in the long term, that lifetime value will be there because there's that brand connection. Um, and that's really the, the customer that we look for and we maintain. And loyalty is a huge part of the strategy and that clienteling as a luxury brand. Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. Um, so what you're saying basically is that the, the, all the top of the funnel activity was like driving people to the store like you, you knew you couldn't convert first customers or you know wasn't likely to convert first first customers online is that what you're saying yeah well back in the day now it's very different now oh, okay. it's all about how do you still had still that mentality of what what happened in store how do you translate that or allow that experience online i think most brands are going through that and reinventing themselves over this past year to how do you create that same experience or augment that experience um, mm. from the store yeah. And the same kind of level of service you get when you come in store and you're greeted and we bring you the hot tea and the warm towel and we talk and, you know, that kind of really high touch experience yeah. translated online. And you see a lot of the rise right now, especially in cosmetics of virtual services, yeah. um, the Zoom consultations, um, sampler packs going out with kind of minis to create your regimen for the first time. So that's that kind of bundling and that high touch service is a, a new model. I think you're going to continue to see over the next decade as yeah. people come in store or they, their relationship with the store changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's very, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, uh, 
I've, I've recently talked to uh, someone who, uh, Michel Son, who is, uh, who was actually uh, uh, head of CRM at, uh, for the APAC region for Cartier. And we talked mm -hmm. about all these, uh, you know, sort of a, adapting to e-commerce for luxury, for luxury brands, et cetera. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really a, a brilliant talk. So for anyone listening, you know, it should be out when this, uh, this, uh, this episode airs. Um, and, and it's funny how you talked about sort of the, the sales cycle uh, being super long and you guys like being okay with it at the time. Like we know uh, like we need to be, be there for maybe a few years before actually getting to a point where our fans can afford us. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, what are sort of the, uh, and, and so I guess to, to, to have that, uh, that strategy working, you need to target younger, younger people maybe, or people who, you know, are, are going to be future customers in the next five, 10 years. Um, what was your strategy to target these young people and, and sort of uh, get, get La Mer in front of them? I mean, you know, it's a, it's a full rounded strategy from the product itself, the, pro the packaging, distribution, to social, to campaigns and influencers. So it's really thought about throughout the full spectrum of business. Mm -hmm. From a marketing perspective, once the product is locked and distribution is going, it's really about thinking about our channels, the type of content, the models that we use, you know, how do you ensure you have representation across all ages, all races, to make sure that they see themselves in the brand, um, in influencers, tapping into the right audiences. So that's really how we think about it. And mm. Of course, like any brand, we don't have bottomless pockets, so we have to make choices. Um, oh. And each region as well, you know, I was on the global side of the business. So thinking about each region, how do you have representation? Um, and also thinking very strategically about in that moment, let's say we're focusing on a certain product and that product is better suited for an older client. We're going to pivot that campaign in that direction. But oh. we have a whole line of products that are suited for younger consumers or at a better price point. Like we had a really cool lip serum come out, which I love. I have like 12 of them scattered throughout my purses. And that was a really great acquisition product for that consumer. Great social product. We could use some of the um, new e-commerce e tools on Instagram, like checkout and try to drive some of that scarcity modeling there. Um, very beautiful packaging. It was easy to keep in your purse. It's almost like a, a badge, right? So it's your little kind of badge of La Mer that you carry along with you, which skincare is not really a badge product. It's in your vanity. Very few people go look in your vanity unless you're really showing it off to you on your shelfies. So this was one of those products that really fit that. Um, and that product got a whole campaign treatment got tailored to the younger consumer with those influencers that were within their kind of spectrum and world with creative that felt young and bright and youthful, with models that felt young and youthful. So it's interesting how you pair the full package together and make mm -hmm. sure it feels that across all the cylinders, it's tight versus kind of just a broad swath for the brand. Interesting. So a smaller price point and uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's the way to go. And uh, how, how big did it grow? Like how, how big is it now? And what, when, when you joined it, like how, I don't know if you can share like turnover or anything, but uh, in terms of growth, like how, how, how did it grow? The La Mer brand is on fire. I will just say that it has, it's, it's from a business standpoint, oh my gosh, I think it like tripled 
from in the years I've been there, probably more, honestly. Um, the team grew exponentially and it also changed the way that we worked internally because we were a big brand. You know, we had gone from being a little kind of starter challenger brand when I joined to becoming a big, big part of the Estee Lauder business. And with that becomes um, more focus from senior leadership on the corporate side, more resources, which was always great. Um, but also we have to become more careful. We have more people coming for taking our market share. So how do you also put the defense on? It's no longer just about growth, mm. but being very aware of what's happening around you with other brands as skincare really took off as a category. How do you handle copycats and how do you stay in front of the pack as mm. a leader in the, in the industry? So that's something that Lemaire is constantly thinking about they're the number one luxury brand for a reason. So they're always five step at, steps ahead and it's not easy doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. And uh, um, it's such a big industry like cosmetics and skincare. It's uh, uh, I think we, if you're not like uh, a consumer or you're not into it that much, uh, you don't have, you have no idea like how big it is uh, and, and how much like you have, uh, a lot of like brands with a very specific positioning, how competitive it is as well. So it's really impressive when you see a, a business grow this fast, uh, um, this much and this fast. It's it's really impressive and it's a great job. It's a, <laughs> thanks to you as well. So well done. Um, uh, so so now you're you, you know you're you're at Google. It's a different adventure. It's uh, it's something new. And I was curious just to talk a little bit about you know what you do and what what the project what the what kind of projects you have going on because um i don't know what discovery ads are so maybe you can tell me about that uh, and yeah what are uh, what are your sort of uh, your priorities for uh, coming up yeah so i've definitely taken a pivot into a new space um but similar skill set being applied uh, on a on a growth product discovery ads um is google's query list new ad product. Um, it released in spring of last year. So it's still very young and nascent and evolving and finding out what the right product features are needed for advertisers and consumers. Um, so it's currently served on the Gmail app, the Discover feed and in YouTube. And the best way to think about the discovery ad is that Google has nailed the business when it comes to you searching. When you put it in a query, they have cornered that, that business. Now, what happens when you're more leaned back and just scrolling and looking, similar to a Facebook or an Instagram, they hadn't really been in that space yet. So Discovery Ads was created for that reason. They have so much amazing intent-based targeting within the Google ecosystem. So they can really, really do amazing targeting. Um, when a consumer is in that leaned back phase. So that's why Discovery Ads um, was created. So my role is as a global product lead, I am responsible for bringing both product to market. So making sure that there's a, a product is appropriate for the market. Now, why I'm unique into this role is that I was an advertiser. I was the one buying, I was the market. And also bringing market to product. So I'm this middleman liaison working with the product management teams and engineers and with the go-to-market teams and the sellers that work directly with the clients to make sure that we're translating and making the right decisions when it comes to product prioritization, um, narratives, positioning. Um, so it really does fit for the, the actual advertiser. So 
I am in this a cog within a, a big wheel, making sure the product is moving in the right direction and that we're making the trade-offs we need to make um, and pushing the strategies forward. And also making sure that my product teams are hearing the advertiser's point of view because they are so far from it and it's a big business. So how do you make sure that they hear that voice of the advertiser come through and the advertisers run the game that you have your fortune 500 companies, big, big, big advertisers to your small mom and pop. So their needs are very different across many verticals. So that's my role in a minute nutshell. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a big, uh, a big mission, a big, uh, you know, uh, a big plan. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, I, yeah, I was, I was just, just going to ask you, uh, you know, one last thing about this is, uh, as you said, like there are so many uh, Google clients and different segments and all this, um, you know, how do you sort of uh, prioritize all this and uh, launching a new advertising product like this one, which is a kind of big, of a big deal, because as you said, like it's a, it's a whole new uh, product and area for Google where, you know, they could do maybe much more. So how do you sort of prioritize your markets and who you're going to be talking to first and who you're going to adapt the product to first? Like, how do you approach this? It's a great question. And it's a, it's a very hard question I can say is the right now, the way that we think about it is carving up the segments and understanding who has, who is the greatest user of the product? Because in some scenarios, not every ad product works for every business. So what is the business that really would lean into this. And let's like just pretend for a second that it's cosmetics that come from that world. And it's a very visual type of product, which would fit very well for discovery ads. So you would then size that market, understand the feature gap that they need for this to really work for them um, and work really closely with the advertisers, get feedback. And it's beyond even just um, the front end, what a consumer sees, but sometimes it's all the way in the back end where the construction flow is too confusing for a consumer or the creative that they have running on one platform isn't translating well on this platform. So all of those aspects come together when you're assigning the product priority roadmap that the product marketing team leads, um, product management team leads, I should say, um, to make the decisions. And there's trade-offs. You can't do everything. And that's why products evolve over time, over years. And you can, the best way to compare is look at Instagram, think about how much they've added over the years and what, what it's first started as just an image-based feed solution to having carousels, to video, to checkout, to guides. So it happens over time and it comes with feedback and innovation. And this is a very similar product and it's at that year one stage. So it's super nascent. So where it goes from here is gonna continue to evolve with the advertisers need, with the consumers need, with the ecosystem as a whole, and looking across other platforms too. Yeah, awesome! It sounds really exciting. Um, you know, I can't wait to to see how this uh, uh, discovery ads will will, will go. Yeah, and, keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, no, it's a great mission. Um, do you have maybe any resource you can share with us on you know in the in your previous years in La Mer or you know, uh, as you grew into digital, into marketing, into uh, where did you learn from? Who are the people you maybe followed, the books you read that inspired you? Yeah, I've been so love lucky to have amazing mentors and really, really strong women guide me, give me coaching, um, help me navigate and just advice. So really that's been a, a big part of my growth has been leaning around those around me. 
and they're very natural. You know, they were old managers, they were colleagues. I mean, I was, especially at Estee Lauder, I was surrounded by powerhouse women and everyone was supporting, helping, lifting you up. So that was a big, big part of my development. From resources, you know, there's one book that I absolutely adored, and this is more focused if you're a global marketer working with many different cultures. I had, speaking of mentors, one of my mentors had recommended this to me when I first started at La Mer and I was having a hard time, not really sure how to work as an American with uh, my colleagues in China, my colleagues in Japan, my colleagues in the UK and how different it was. So the book is called Kiss, Bow or Shake Hands. And it's effectively a giant encyclopedia of cultures and business and kind of the norms of working with them. And it's not long, country, but it really just helps orient you um, and think about how you would approach differently versus just kind of taking my American way forward. So it gives you that perspective to take a step back and reevaluate and see how it goes. Do you use um, one of these tactics? Does it work in a meeting? And I can give you a really great example. I, when I first started at Le Mer, I worked primarily on the APAC business. And I would join meetings, my nighttime calls, and ask for feedback. And for months in a row, I had just cricket silence. And I could not understand what I was doing wrong. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just, I don't, I know they have feedback. I just don't know how to get it. And it's part of the culture. They, you know, it's not part of the culture to speak up and out. And the way that you solicit feedback needs to come from different channels. And so once I had learned that from this book, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm coming at this all wrong. I'm expecting them to speak up in this form of 40 people and it's not appropriate. So that was a kind of very tangible ex example. And from that point forward, it was much easier for me to do my job, much easier for them to work with me and they felt respected. So that was a good learning. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh... Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting example the you know asking for feedback thing i i may be completely wrong but i i've seen a documentary recently about sort of the workplace in japan and correct me if i'm wrong like if anyone's listening and is like you know i, I don't know like i've never worked there but apparently uh when you uh you know it, like the you know the kind of happy hour drink sessions that they they do quite often uh, you know after work etc uh, the boss is there and it's like uh, very common in a lot of Japanese companies to do this because uh, after a few drinks, it's much easier for employees to give feedback to their boss during this sort of, you know, uh, intimate, you know, uh, laid back sort of, uh, sort of environment. It's much easier to give feedback. And so this is a great moment for the manager to actually hear, you know, what they have to say and sort of uh, understand, you know, uh, so, so this is something I, I I've seen a documentary recently. I have no idea if it's uh, if it's correct or if I'm not like mistaking or something. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, uh, an important thing to 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 know. You know, when you're working with so many different cultures, it's uh, yeah, it's a great book. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm not, I'm laughing because I think about how horribly wrong that could go in an American culture. Giving <laughs> feedback to your boss after a few drinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so funny. But yeah, I never heard that before either. But exactly yeah. it's a great example of how different it is versus yeah. in the Americas. They want feedback constantly. They have the open door policy. Um, and people use it as yeah. they should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Eva, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Uh, could you tell us maybe where we could connect with you if uh, if someone wants to ask you any question or connect with you online? 
Yeah, um, LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is just Eva Valerio. You'll see me there and my big head of curly hair. You can't see me right now. That's how you know it's me. Um, reach out there. My personal email is on my bio. So anytime. All right. Thank you so much for our time. Thank you.